Despite being people of sound mind and body, we all have our strange anxieties. Like my friend, for example, whose mother and her were afraid of the postman. Whenever he came, we always had to hide. Or my other friend, who has a deep fear of clowns, to the point that it brings her to tears. Hell, even Nikki and I have our own tics of uneasiness. As you heard in the last episode, Nikki is afraid of a serial killer in her closet. And for me, I always get a sense of apprehension when I see an abandoned car. I wouldn't say that an abandoned car scares me, but it makes me uneasy. Something about it just doesn't seem right. Even if you unquestionably have thousands of dollars to spend on a car, you wouldn't just abandon it. A car costs money. A car allows us to function. A car is a little bit more than just a thing. That's why an abandoned car makes me so uncomfortable. Seeing a car by itself really springs up questions that require sinister answers. Whose car was it? What happened to that person to feel the need to abandon it? And lastly, but most importantly, is that person okay? This week, Nikki and I will introduce to you two men that have been found dead in mysterious ways. Two men that have made us question more than what we have answered. Two men that once had lives that they too had to abandon. So, will you join us? Has anyone ever told you that the possibilities are endless? It's a phrase that we throw around a lot, sometimes in reference to things that are frivolous or innocuous. I think of it when I'm getting frozen yogurt, though a mathematician would argue that with the right calculations, there's almost always a set amount of possibilities in a froyo shop. But what about something more sinister? An unsolved case, potentially of murder, perhaps just an accident? but with a suspicious code that can't be cracked. The Mystery of the Somerton Man is a story that I can't seem to shake. Also known as the Taman Shud case, this tale is one with many twists and turns, and truly an example of the weight of the phrase, the possibilities are endless. At 6.30 a.m. on December 1st, 1948, the police were contacted. The body of an unidentified man had been found on Somerton Beach in South Australia. The man was found lying in the sand across from the crippled children's home. Remember, it's 1948. He was lying back with his head rested against a seawall and his legs out, his feet crossed at the ankle. Looked like a guy that was just taking a nap. Passersby thought that he was sleeping, perhaps sleeping off a long night at the bar. Witnesses said that the evening before that they had seen a man resembling that man in the same spot. A couple who had seen the man at 7 p.m. had seen him extend his right arm and then drop it limply. Another couple mentioned that they noticed between 7.30 and 8, but they hadn't seen him move in that half hour. They thought that he'd shifted positions, but they didn't see the movement for themselves. They joked that he must have been dead the way that he wasn't reacting mosquitoes. They assumed he was drunk or sleeping, so they let him be. Another witness told investigators 
She had seen a man looking down at the Somerton man that she thought was sleeping. He was looking from the steps leading to the beach. And it wasn't until 1959 that another witness came forward to report having seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Beach the night before his body had been found. All witnesses recounted that the body was in the same position as when the police discovered him. None of them were close enough to see his face to be able to confirm that it was the same person. So the police believed that he had died while sleeping. He was found with an unlit cigarette on the right collar of his coat. In his pockets, he had a second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city that they were unable to verify had been used, an American aluminum comb, a half-empty pack of Juicy Fruit chewing gum, a quarter of a box of Bryant and May matches, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes. But instead of Army Club cigarettes, it had seven Kensita cigarettes inside. Pathologist John Burton Cleland reported the man was of British appearance and between 40 and 45. He noted the man was in top physical condition. He was 5 feet 11 inches tall, with hazel eyes and fair to ginger-colored hair. He had a slight gray around his temples, broad shoulders and a narrow waist. His hands and nails showed no sight of wear from manual labor or a fight with an attacker though his feet showed the wear of a dancer or a person who wore pointed shoes, as his big and little toes met in a wedge shape. Cleland noted his calf muscles were pronounced like a ballet dancer. These can be dominant genetic traits, something he was born with, or characteristics of dancers and long-distance runners. The man was clean-shaven, dressed in a white shirt, a red and blue tie, brown pants, socks and shoes, and had a brown pullover matched with a gray and brown double-breasted jacket. But strangely, all of the labels in the clothing had been removed. He had no hat, something that was rather unusual in 1948, and he had no wallet. His teeth matched no dental records of a known living person. No identification at all led police to think that he had committed suicide. Cleland asserted that if the body had been carried to his final resting place, then, quote, all the difficulties would disappear. An autopsy ruled the time of death to be around 2 a.m. on December 1st. The pathologist noted that his heart was of normal size and normal in every way. Congestion was reported in the brain, the pharynx, the stomach, the second half of the duodenum, the kidneys, spleen, and liver. The gullet was covered in superficial layers of whitening of the mucosa, with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. The spleen was found to be three times the normal size, and his stomach had a mix of food and blood. His last meal was a pasty eaten three to four hours before his death. Tests found no foreign substances in his body. The pathologist concluded, quote, I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural. The poison, I suggested, was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic." End quote. His last meal was not to believe to have been the source of the poisoning. While the inquest to death was conducted by Cleland, a few days after the body had been discovered, it was not adjourned until June 17, 1949. Cleland re-examined the body and noted that his shoes were very clean, unusual for a man who was believed to have wandered the city all day. 
This added to the belief that the man had been carried to the beach as there was no report or evidence of vomiting or convulsions associated with the effects of poisoning. Because no one was able to positively identify the man, there was a serious chance he had died elsewhere and been dumped. The body remained in the same place and position. The coroner was unable to identify the man, cause of death, or whether the man had seen alive at Summerton Beach that night before was the same man. On December 10th, 1948, the body was embalmed after the police were unable to positively ID him. A professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, Cedric Stanton Hicks, testified that a group of drugs, two variants in particular, number one and number two in his words, were extremely toxic in small doses and would be difficult, if not impossible, to identify even if looked for. He gave the coroner a small slip of paper with the names of the drugs, something not released to the public until the 1980s, as they were quite easy to obtain from a pharmacist, even as an ordinary citizen. They were later identified as digitalis and ubane, both glucosides. Digitalis is derived from the foxglove plant and is used in heart medications. Ubane is derived from trees and used to treat hypertension and sometimes arrhythmias, but when taken without need, they can both be poisonous. Hicks stated that if the death was seven hours before his body was last seen moving, the twitches could have been his last convulsions before death. Cleland stated, quote, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucoside, and that it was not accidentally administered. But I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person, end quote. But even with all these findings, he could not determine the finite cause of death of the Somerton man. This information alone made the case strange, but it only gets more peculiar. So much so that the authorities began to call it an unparalleled mystery. They began to believe that the cause of death may never be known. On January 14, 1949, Staff at the Adelaide Railway Station found a brown suitcase with the label removed. The suitcase had been checked into the station after 11 a.m. on November 30, 1948. It was believed that the suitcase was owned by the man found on the beach. The suitcase contained a red checkered dressing gown, a pair of red felt slippers size 7, four pair of underwear, pajamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of pants with sand in the cuff, an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down to a short, sharp instrument, a pair of sharpened scissors, a small square of zinc, likely used to sharpen the knife and the scissors, and a stenciling brush used by third officers on merchant ships. But they also found a thread card of Barber brand orange wax thread, something not available in Australia. This was undoubtedly what connected the suitcase to the Somerton man. It was the same thread used to repair the lining of a pocket of the pants that he was found wearing on the beach. All the tags on the clothing in the suitcase had been removed, but police found the name T. Keane, K-E-A-N-E, on a tie, and Keane, K-E-A-N-E, on a laundry bag, and... Keen, K-E-A-N, missing that last E on a singlet. They also found three dry cleaning marks, 1171-7, 1171-7, 1171-7, 1171-7, 1171-7, 
4393-7 and 3053-7. So was there a name for our victim? Had they discovered the identity of the man who had so strangely been impossible to name? The police were positive that whoever removed the clothing tags had purposefully left the name Keen on the tags because it wasn't the dead man's name. Others mentioned that the Keen tags were the only ones that could not be removed without damaging the clothes. An investigation into the name T. Keen found no person in any English-speaking country and the dry cleaning marks also brought no new leads. The police were puzzled as to why there were no spare socks, no correspondence despite finding pencils and letter forms. The only new information gathered from the suitcase was that the stitching on the coat determined it had been manufactured in the United States. The coat hadn't been imported to Australia, meaning the man had been to the United States or bought the coat from someone else who had. The police searched train records and believed the man to have arrived at the station by an overnight train from Melbourne, Sydney, or Port Augusta. They suggested perhaps that he'd used a public pool to shower, stashing his suitcase at the railway station, purchasing a ticket, and then leaving the station. Really, the discovery of the suitcase only posed more questions. Around the same time of the inquest, a tiny piece of paper rolled up was found in the fob pocket sewn into the man's trousers. The paper read, Taman should. Library officials were called to translate the text. They identified the phrase to mean ended or finished and were found on the last page of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. The paper's opposite side was blank, suggesting it was from the book. The police called a nationwide search for a copy of the book with the same blank backside of the page. They released an image of the paper to the press. Soon, the copy from which the page had been taken was located. A man brought a 1941 copy of Edward Fitzgerald's 1859 translation of the Rubiat, published by Whitcomb and Tombs in Christchurch, New Zealand. The man, known as Ronald Francis, a pseudonym given to him by Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, who had led the initial investigation, has never been publicly identified. Francis had not thought that the book would be connected to the case until he had seen the press about the Taman Shud paper. Statements given to the police say that the book was found in the rear footwell of a car about the time the body had been found. Though, like everything else in this case, there was confusion and uncertainty surrounding how the book was found. One newspaper reported that the book was found a week or two before the body. Though, former South Australian police detective Jerry Feltis, who dealt with the case when it was classified as a cold case, reported that the book was found just after the man was found on the beach. The timing is important, as the Summerton man was believed to have arrived in Adelaide just the day before his body was found on the beach. If the book was found weeks before, it suggests that the man had been in Adelaide before, for a longer period, or that the book was not his, but a clue to his murder. The book was in fact missing the words Taman Shud on the last page and was microscopically tested to indicate that the paper found with the Summerton man was in fact from that book. When investigating the book, detectives found indentations from handwriting on the inside of the back cover, including a telephone number, an unidentified number, 
and text that looked like some sort of coded or encrypted message. The coded message consisted of five lines. The second line was struck out and was similar to the fourth. They read as follows. First line, W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D. Second line, M-L-I-A-O-I, struck out. Third line, W-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P. Fourth line, M-L-I-A-B-O-A-I-A-Q-C. And the fifth line was I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B. In the book, investigators were unsure if the first line begins with W or M, but it's widely believed to be a W. Some have suggested the second line may also be underlined rather than struck out, and there's debate over whether the final letter of the second line is an I or an L. With no real leads from the discovery of the book, police turned to the theme of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam for potential symbolism. The theme is that one should live life to the fullest, have no regrets when it's over. The poem's subject led the police to believe it could have been suicide after all, but there was still no hard evidence of this either. There is an X about the last O in the code, but it's just not known if it's significant. The letters were originally thought to be a foreign language before being recognized as code, though when the code experts were called in, they were unable to decipher the lines. In 1987, journalist Stuart Littlemore requested cryptographers from the Department of Defense analyze the text. They reported that it would be impossible to provide a satisfactory answer. If it was a message, the brevity meant it had insufficient symbols to extract a clear meaning. They said it could also be a, quote, meaningless product from a disturbed mind. The unlisted number was explored as evidence. It belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen Joe Thompson. She lived about 1,300 feet from where the body was found. When interviewed by police, she claimed she didn't know the man. She did not know why the dead man would have had her phone number or why he would be in her neighborhood the night before his death. But she did report an unidentified man attempted to visit her in late 1948, and that a neighbor was asked about her. In Jerry Feltis' interview in 2002, he described Thompson as being evasive. He believed that she knew something about the man's identity. In 2014, Kate, Joe's daughter, revealed she too believed that her mother knew the dead man. And in 1949, Joe requested that the police not keep a record of her name or release any details to third parties, as she did not want to be associated with the case. She said it would be embarrassing and harmful to her reputation. The police agreed, a decision that was harmful to later investigations. When a plaster cast of the bust of the dead man was made in the hopes that it would help him be identified, Sergeant Lane showed Joe. She said she couldn't identify the person, but was, quote, completely taken aback, to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. Paul Lawson, the technician who made the cast and was present when she viewed it, said that she immediately looked away and refused to look again. Thompson said that she worked at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney during World War II and admitted to owning a copy of the Rubaiyat. In 1945, 
She claims to have given it to an army lieutenant named Alf Boxel. She said that after the war, she moved to Melbourne and married. She had received a letter from Boxel and replied, telling him that she was now married. Though research has shown she was not yet married, as her future husband was in the process of getting in force. They did not marry until 1950. But there was no evidence that Boxel had contacted Joe after 1945. Police suspected that Boxel may have been the dead man. However, in July of 1949, he was found in Sydney, with the final page of his copy of the Rubaiyat intact. The words Taman Shud still in place. He was alive and working, unaware of the dead man or any link between the two of them. With no new avenues to pursue for identification or an answer to the cause of death, the unknown man was buried in Adelaide's West Terrace Cemetery in 1949. The South Australian Grandstand Bookmakers Association paid for him to have a pauper's burial. The grave contains multiple burials, the Somerton man being the most recent. Years after the burials, flowers began to appear at the grave. Police questioned a woman seen leaving the cemetery, but she claimed she knew nothing of the man. Not much more information had been gleaned since the initial investigation, though a receptionist at the hotel opposite the railway station revealed a strange man had stayed in room 21 or 23 for a few days around the time of the death, checking out on November 30th, 1948. He was English-speaking and carried only a small black case, which an employee had looked inside and seen something looking like a needle. There have been many suggested theories, though one of the most popular is that the dead man was a spy. It would explain his lack of available identifiable materials. But there's also been many reported identifications of the man. One in 1948 by the advisor, an Adelaide newspaper, claimed that the man was E.C. Johnson, though the following day Johnson identified himself at the police station. The same day, a photograph of the dead man was on the front page of another Adelaide newspaper called The News. Calls flooded in about the potential identifications of the man, but on December 4th, the police had announced the man's fingerprints were not in any South Australian police records, forcing them to look beyond Australia for identification. For many years, people positively identified the man to be a friend or family member, though no identification stuck. By November 1953, over 251 people had solved the identity of the body. Perhaps these people were looking for their own answers, closure to their own traumatic losses. In 2011, biological anthropologist Maciej Henberg compared the identification card of H.C. Reynolds to the Somerton Man. A document issued by the United States to foreign seamen during World War I Henberg found anatomical similarities in the nose, lips, and eyes, but those lacked the very good match that was found in ear shape and a mole that was in the same position in both photos. The card was issued in the U.S. on February 28, 1918 to H.C. Reynolds, his nationality listed as British and age 18. But searches conducted in the U.S. National Archive the UK National Archives, and the Australian War Memorial Research Centre have failed to find any such record of Reynolds. In March 2009, Professor Derek Abbott began to push for DNA testing and more investigation on the code. His work has led to questions about the assumption the police may have made. He suggested that the cigarettes may have been the source of the poisoning. He also started working on the code from scratch. 
It's been suggested that the letters follow the pattern of a quatrain in the Rubaiyat. Copies of the Rubaiyat, the Tamond, and the Bible were being compared to the code using computers to get statistical bases for letter frequencies, though investigators need a copy of the exact edition of the book, something that's really hard to find. The original copy was lost in the 1960s, and the researchers remained stalled in search for that match. But it wasn't just the book that disappeared. The Summerton Man's autopsy reports are also missing. Rare anomalies are being used as a means of potentially identifying the man. Henberg found the Summerton Man's ears were strange. His simba, or the upper ear hollow, is larger than the cam, the lower ear hollow, which is only found in 1-2% to of Caucasian people. Abbott also found that the Summerton man had hypodontia, a rare genetic disorder, found in only 2% of the general population. When Abbott obtained a photo of Joe's eldest son, Robin, these features made linking the Summerton man to Robin simple. Robin had not only larger Simba than Kayum, but also had hypodontia. This is estimated to be a 1 in 10 million chance. Others estimate it may even be 1 in 20 million. But Robin died in 2009. He would have been 16 months old in 1948. Some have suggested he was the son of either Al Boxel or the Summerton Man, but was passed off as Joe's husband, Prosper Thompson's. DNA testing could confirm or deny this speculation. Abbott has advocated for an exhumation for an autosomal DNA test, which could link him to a short list of surnames which, paired with other clues, could bring the case to a close. In 2011, Attorney General John Rao refused permission to exhume the body. Rao stated, quote, There needs to be public interest reasons that go well beyond public curiosity or broad scientific interest. In November 2013, relatives of Joe gave interviews to 60 Minutes. Kate, the daughter of Joe and Prosper Thompson, said that her mother had lied to the police. Joe did know the Summerton man and that his identity was, quote, known to a level higher than police force. She suggested that her mother and the Summerton man may have both been spies. She mentioned her mother taught English to immigrants, was interested in communism, and could speak Russian. She never told her daughter where or why she learned Russian. Robin's widow, Roma, and his daughter, Rachel, also suggested the Summerton man was Robin's father. They lodged a new application with Attorney General Rao to have the body exhumed and the DNA tested. Kate, though, was in opposition of the exhumation. She believed that it would be disrespectful to her brother. Exhumation remains a difficult and unlikely possibility. Other key evidence no longer exists as much of it was destroyed in 1986, and witness statements, too, have disappeared. People continue to try to crack the code in the back of the book, but without a copy of the same book, the code remains seemingly impossible to crack. The evidence is scattered. So really, the Summerton man could be anyone. The possibilities are truly endless. At 1.20 p.m. on January 2nd, 1935, a lone man checked into the Hotel President in downtown Kansas City. The man checked under the name Roland T. Owen. 
The hotel was built in 1926 and its address is 1329 Baltimore Avenue. From the start, the man was weird. The man had no luggage besides a comb and a toothbrush. The bellboy admitted that he complained about the prices of the neighboring hotel several times, but he checked into the room 1046 on the 10th floor. He was only seen briefly throughout his stay. Other than the suitcase, he was a basic hotel guest. At first, the staff didn't really notice anything strange. And generally, they were used to many out-of-towners being as recluse as this mysterious man. The man did become notable six days later, but let me back up. On January 3rd, one day after Owen checked into the hotel, the hotel maid, Mary Soptic, stopped by to clean his room. It was around 12 o'clock, and most of the hotel's other residents were out for the day. However, Owen's room was locked from the inside. Soptic knocked, and Owen opened the door. After her suggesting she could come back later, she was let in. Soptic found the room in almost complete darkness, with the shades slightly drawn and the only light coming from a small dim lamp. Mind you, this is noon. As she cleaned, Owen mentioned that he had a friend coming to visit him shortly, and would she mind not locking the door? Even though she never locked him in in the first place, Soptic awkwardly agreed. After that, Owen left the room. Four hours later, Soptic mentioned she returned to the room 1046 with fresh towels. She found the door still unlocked from when she cleaned the room that afternoon, and upon entering, found Owen Lane fully clothed on top of his still-made bed, seemingly asleep. There was a note on the bedside table saying, quote, Dawn, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. End quote. At 10.30 on January 4th, Soptic stopped by to make the beds and found Owen's door to be locked from the outside, as it would be when patrons left. Assuming Owen was not inside, she opened the door with her master key. To her surprise, Owen was still there, sitting inside in the dark, in a chair in the corner of the room. Presumably uncomfortable by the surprise and the strange demeanor, Soptic cleaned and stayed quiet. As she cleaned, the phone rang and Owen picked up. She stated that Owen said, quote, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. End quote. After a moment, he repeated, No, I am not hungry. After he hung up, Owen began questioning Soptic about her job and the hotel. It was the first time he had really said anything to her. He asked her how many rooms she was in charge of, what kind of people lived in the presidential hotel, and again complained about the price of the neighboring hotel. Soptic answered quickly, like what people usually do when they want to get the fuck out of a weird situation. She was finished cleaning and she left Owen alone. Only then did she realize that someone locked Owen in his room. Later that day, Soptic returned again with fresh 
towels. However, when she knocked, she heard two voices in the room, rather than just Owen. When she announced that she had fresh towels, a loud, deep voice told her to leave, claiming they had enough towels. Despite the fact that she knew she had removed all of the towels that morning, Soptic noped out of there and left the two men alone. That afternoon, two guests came to the hotel. The first was Jean Owen, no relation to Roland. She had come to Kansas City to meet her boyfriend for the day and decided that she would stay at the hotel for the night. Upon checking into Hotel President, Jean Owen was given the room 1048, right next door to Roland. That night, according to police statements, she heard a repeated commotion. She stated, quote, I heard a lot of noise which sounded like it was on the same floor and consisted largely of men and women talking loudly and cursing. When the noise continued, I was about to call the desk clerk but decided not to, end quote. The other hotel guest was not a guest at all. The bellhop who had been on duty that night described her as a commercial woman or, in other words, a sex worker, who had frequented the rooms of the hotel's male patrons at night. The evening of January 4th, she came into the hotel searching for a man in room 1026. However, despite being a very prompt customer, the woman couldn't seem to find the man she was looking for. After searching well over an hour on multiple floors, she gave up and went home. The next morning, the bellhop received a call from the hotel's telephone operator. The phone from 1046 had been off the hook for 10 minutes without anyone using it. The bellhop went to check in on Owen and noticed that the door was locked with a do not disturb sign hung on the doorknob. He knocked on the door and Owen told him to come in. However, when the bellhop told Owen that the door was locked, he got no response. The bellhop knocked once again and yelled for Owen to hang up the phone, assuming Owen had simply been drunk and knocked it off the hook. Assuming Owen heard and put the phone back on the receiver, the bellhop went downstairs. However, an hour and a half later, the telephone operator called the bellhop again. The phone on room 1046 was still off the hook and hadn't been hung up at all. This time, the bellhop let himself in Owen's room with the master key. The man was still lying naked in his bed, seemingly drunk. Noping the fuck out of there as well, the bellhop simply straightened the phone, placed it back on the hook, and locked the door behind him, reporting Owen to his manager. An hour later, the telephone operator called again. The phone again was off the hook, though not in use. This time, when the bellhop opened the door, he found something completely different. What he found was a bloodbath. Owen was curled up in the corner of his room, his head in his hands, suffering multiple stab wounds. The bed sheets and towels were stained with blood, and the walls were splattered with it. It wasn't just a simple murder. It was a deranged killer. The bellhop immediately called the police, who took Owen straight to the hospital. In the hospital, it was discovered that Owen had been tortured viciously. His arms, legs, and neck had been restrained by some kind of cord, and his chest sustained multiple stab wounds. 
He also suffered a punctured lung and a fractured skull. Rowan T. Owen died shortly after arriving at the hospital. The doctors discovered that Owen's wounds were afflicted to him that morning. They discovered that he had attempted to call for help multiple times, but hadn't been able to make it farther than picking up the phone due to his injuries. When investigators searched the room, they came up short. There were no clothes in the room at all, nothing matching the description of Owen when he checked in. The hotel amenities such as soap and toothpaste were also missing, as well as anything that could have been the murder weapon. The only thing detectives found were four small fingerprints on the telephone stand, possibly from a female. But, worse of all, detectives discovered that Rowan T. Owen never existed. There was no record of such a man living anywhere in the U.S. This was an abandoned man. The neighboring hotel that Owen had complained so much about came forward and claimed that the man matching the description of Owen had stayed in the hotel on January 1st. He had checked under the name Eugene K. Scott. Yes, Eugene K. Scott was a fake name too. Like any mysterious body found by the police, various people identified the body as a loved one. However, none of them seemed valid. The city decided to bury the body. However, as the funeral was being arranged, a bouquet of flowers and a donation to cover the funeral costs showed up at the funeral home with a letter that read only, quote, Love forever, Lucille, end quote. A year later, a woman named Ogletree claimed that Owen slash Scott was her son and had been missing for years. She claimed that his name was Artemis Ogletree, and he had been staying at another Kansas City area hotel at the time he went missing. The police believed her, and the case was closed. But they still didn't know who killed him, or why. Who was the man with the rough voice who told the maid to go away? Was it Don? Whose fingerprints were found in room 1046? Did they actually belong to a woman? Was it Louise? Did she pay for the funeral? Was Louise the killer? Was it Don? Nothing was really solved. Here are some theories. The first one was that Don beat Artemis to death, which is why Artemis was locked inside. Another theory consisted of a notorious mob in Kansas City. However, I can't find any record of that other than what I found on Reddit, which isn't 100% the most reliable source. Another theory is that Don didn't act alone. The commercial woman could have assisted Don with the murder, hence the fingerprints. 1026 could have been mistaken for 1046. Lastly, many articles back in the day suggested that Artemis was murdered for being unfaithful to a lover which explains the mysterious Lucille note. Whatever the issue is, police are still finding clues today. The case isn't completely dead, but it's becoming more and more complex. We are struggling to find an answer, and maybe we never will. If you haven't already yet, 
please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or iTunes. Give us a shout out there. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot. If you would like to listen to weird stories about your state, please let us know. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on our email at tales of the number two cities podcast at gmail.com. We also have merch and we're creating more and more designs every day. Please check us out on tpublic.com and search Tales of Two Cities podcast on the search bar. The Nikki and Ellie drawing and the retro one are my favorites. Also, thank you so much for listening.